Our scripture now is Hebrews 11.32. Time will fail me. Hebrews 11.32. Time will fail me. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that when we come to you, we come knowing that in Christ, in Christ alone, our faith resides. Our hope, our only hope is in Him. We thank you, Lord, that there are many examples of this faith in Christ that you have given to us. Now, Lord, would you open our eyes and show us how we ought to have this kind of fearless faith, this kind of enduring faith, this kind of faith that's able to do things that are beyond what we could ask or think, all because we believe in the Word of Christ. Teach us that, Lord, and grant us your Holy Spirit to believe this Word of Christ and do whatever your will is. For we ask in Christ's name, Amen. Now, in our chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews, the Apostle has gone through several examples, specific examples, with brief explanations as to what the patriarchs of old, what kind of faith they had, and in whom they placed their faith. And he also said that it is necessary to have this kind of faith in all of us, a faith that is in the true and living God, a faith that is specifically in Christ and Christ's redemption, a faith that is also one that endures. It may be a faith that is wayward at times, but... It is an enduring faith. It is not a faith that is given up. It is not a faith that is temporary, but it is a faith that endures, that endures until the very end. It perseveres until the very end of life. This is the way true faith is. It is not a faith in ourselves, but it looks outward as a gift of God. It looks outward to God in Christ. That's the way this faith is. Now, after explaining several examples here, he now turns to being very brief in our verse, verse 32, and then in the remainder of the chapter, he's going to explain, without naming any individuals, some of their obedience, some of their feats, some of their acts of righteousness, some of their obedience. This is what he will do. And why does he do this? Why is he now changing the way he's explaining he says the very reason why. And what more shall I say, for time will fail me? What more shall I say, for time will fail me? He has given us several examples, and now he's going to speak more generally after our verse, verse 32, because he could take a lot of time to explain in detail about everyone in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. He could explain and write a long, a very long letter, a book of thousands of pages to explain in every way what kind of faith all of these people, all of the saints of the Old Testament had from Genesis to Malachi throughout all those 39 books. He could have taken a long time to do so. Now, when he says this, he's explaining why now he's going to start abbreviating and why he's going to eventually change the subject away from the saints of the Old Testament. But having said that, what is he implying to us? 
What is he implying to the readers, and what is he implying to us now? He's implying to us that if we want to know more, we need to go to the Old Testament. If we want to know more, we need to read the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and so forth. We need to read these books in order for us to know the way the faithful people were of the past. They are people just like we are people. They had sin in their life just like we have sin in our life. They, have they had unbelief in their life just like we had unbelief in our life. Now they are faithful. They are faithful till the very end of their life. So if we're going to be faithful to Christ until the very end of our life, should we not study the Old Testament and learn about all these individuals? Yes, if we are new believers, many of these names are new to us, they're strange to us, they're very long and hard to pronounce sometimes to us. However, they are real people, and we ought to know something about them, to be encouraged by them, to see from their example how they pressed on, how they endured, they persevered, they didn't give up, they didn't say, no, this is not for me, I'm going to go do something else. They didn't say anything like that. They kept on. They persevered in the faith. And this is what he's implying. He's implying that to us. We also need to read the Old Testament. We also, because we have time, right? However much time God gives us, we have time to read the Old Testament and even the New Testament in order to read all of Scripture for the rest of our life. Shall we take up that challenge? Shall we read Genesis to Revelation for the rest of our life? However long it takes. Whether it takes you one year to do it, or two years to do it, or three years to do it, at least would you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, however, whatever format you choose, would you read it for the rest of your life? Isn't that what he's expecting here? If he doesn't have time to write everything, don't we have the time to read everything and then to contemplate, to think about, and then to have the kind of faith that they have? Why don't we take up that challenge to do so? It's not very difficult. We have time to do so. If you read one chapter a day, you can finish the whole Bible in four years. If you read two chapters a day, you can finish the whole Bible in two years. If you read four chapters a day, you can read the whole Bible in one year. On average, if you do that, you can do so in one year, just four chapters a day. Why not do that? We have time to go on the phone, to go on the internet. We have time for our other pleasures and whatever other things we're doing. We have time. We make time for what we value, right? And if we don't make time for the Word of God, that means in our heart we don't really value it. We don't really love the Word of God. Here, this, when he says, time will fail me, it cannot and it should not fail us to know the Word of Christ. How many of us can recite all the books of the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament? How many of us can uh, tell somebody, your friend or your family, what the Ten Commandments are from memory? Can you tell them what the Ten Commandments are? so that they know what God expects of them, and if they don't believe that, that they repent and believe in the gospel? How can you preach the gospel to somebody if you don't know what's in the Ten Commandments? 
first to tell them about their sin so that they can be saved from their sins, right? And then if they're, once they're saved from their sins, to know to have a standard of how they should live. How can we do that if we don't know the Ten Commandments? What about the fruit of the Spirit? Do we know the fruit of the Spirit? What the fruit of the Spirit is so that once we are true believers, we can have confidence that we are a true believer and we can compare our life Though feeble it may be, we can compare our life to the fruit of the Spirit. And if we can compare our life to the fruit of the Spirit, then we can have confidence that we are true believers, and we can have conviction and courage to explain to others what it means to be a true Christian. Or how about prayer? What about prayer? When we need to pray for our own needs or for someone else's needs, or when we are praying to God and we want to know how to pray to God, do any of us know the, uh, the Psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd? That teaches us a, a model to pray. Or how about the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father Prayer, the Lord's Prayer? Do any of us know that from memory, to be able to pray that whenever we are at a loss for words or whenever we want to concisely and truthfully convey what's on our heart? To God, the Lord Jesus taught us to pray like that. There are so many examples like this that I mean that we Christians, if we would just take the time, then we would have our faith strengthened. We would have our strength buttressed. We would have a fortress of faith if we would simply get these basics of the Bible into our mind, into our heart, into our life. Get all of these basics of the Bible into us. Next, notice he tells us that time will fail him, and then he mentions several of these uh, saints of old, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Why are these individuals, and the other ones he's mentioned, and many others that he has not mentioned by name, why are all of these individuals and people and places and events, whether it's war or tragedy, or murder, what is it, and why is it that all of these kinds of things are there in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament? Why are they there? Why are they there? They are there because Romans 15, 4 says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So when we learn of Gideon, or David, or Samuel, What's the reason for that? For perseverance, for encouragement, that we might have hope. It was written to teach us, to instruct us. That's why those things are there. To benefit us. Not merely to study history. Not merely to study theology. Not merely to have some facts in our head to be able to announce these facts of the Bible to somebody else. No, not for those reasons. They are there for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's why these things are there in the Scriptures. Furthermore, this I will need to remind us all of the fact that even though in our verse and in the subsequent verses and even in the preceding verses, his focus has not been faith in Christ. Faith in Christ has been his focus elsewhere in this letter. Faith in Christ has been his focus all the way through chapter 10. 
So there's no doubt he expects faith in Christ. And even he had briefly mentioned faith in Christ in Hebrews 11.26. Notice Hebrews 11.26. Moses was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I submit to you that when he is mentioning the faith of these individuals throughout this chapter, he has as the object of faith, as the focus of faith, as the person in whom they trusted, it was Christ and Christ alone. The reproach of Christ means the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, all of his humiliation and misery throughout his life when they persecuted him, and finally when he died on the cross. The reproach of Christ entails that. This is what Moses' focus was. This is what Abraham's focus was. This was even Gideon's, Barak's, Samson's, Jephthah's, David's, Samuel's, and the prophets. It was the focus of all of these people. It was faith in Christ. We have to be reminded of this fact because we lose track and we think that if it's just faith, faith in whatever God says in a vague way, in an ambiguous way, if we think it's just faith, just believe, just believe whatever, I'm going to tell you what, just believe. It doesn't, you don't have to comprehend it. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to have any knowledge and specificity. You don't need to understand, is Jesus going to die on the cross for my sins? Or did he die on the cross for my sins? People think it can be vague and ambiguous without faith in Christ's crucifixion and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. People think that of the Old Testament. They think that of Gideon. They think that of David and so forth. They think that among, about all these people. And when they do so, it becomes dangerous. It becomes a different gospel. It becomes a different gospel because then they would say that David did not believe in Christ. He just believed that one of his descendants would be a king. One of David's descendants would be a king, but David's descendant would not be Christ who would die for David's sins. Then they make salvation available in some other way aside from Christ. They do that, and then they say, since David did not believe in Christ, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers don't have to believe in Christ either, because David did not believe in Christ. Abraham did not believe in Christ. Abel did not believe in Christ. Adam did not believe in Christ. Noah did not believe in Christ. Deborah did not believe in Christ. Sarah did not believe in Christ. None of them believed in Christ. So if they didn't believe in Christ, then why are we saying your neighbor has to believe in Christ? Just leave them alone. Let them believe whatever they want to believe. We don't need to tell them anything. We don't need to correct them on anything. Just leave them alone. Let them be happy with their ignorance, with their ambiguity, with their vagueness, even with their falsehood. Let them be let them be, just leave them alone, and let's just mosey on down the road and do our own thing. That's the way people think. When they are not believing that faith in Christ is necessary, absolutely necessary, the death and resurrection of Christ from Adam until the end of the world. Whoever believes must believe in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and eternal life. This, I submit to you, 
was the kind of faith that Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel had. They all had this kind of faith. Now, let's focus on these individuals. Primarily here, except for David, except for King David, primarily here in verse 32, everyone here mentioned, except David and some of the prophets, that you can find their life, the David, Samuel, and the prophets. You can find their life, you can find their, their faith, their acts of faith, you can find them in the book of Judges. So, if you want to do a study of these individuals, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, if you want to do a study of those four, you can find their faith and their acts of faith in the book of Judges. Joshua, it's Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel. Go to the book of Judges in the Bible and you can see where he explains their faith, where in the Old Testament their faith is detailed and explained. Now, having said that, if we were to study the life of David, if we were to study the life of David, it would be in the, primarily in the book, uh, books of Samuel. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Primarily there, not exclusively, but primarily in the books of Samuel. And if we wanted to study the life of Samuel, where do you think we would find that? In the book of Samuel. Especially in the book of 1 Samuel. If we study the book of 1 Samuel, there we can find the faith of Samuel the prophet. As we read earlier from 1 Samuel chapter 7, we saw that Samuel was there, and Samuel was a key figure, a very important prophet, and judge for the people to help them to follow God. And then the prophets. When he mentions the prophets, he's speaking of, he doesn't name any of the prophets, but I believe he's speaking of both those prophets who are named and those prophets who are unnamed. Those prophets who are named and those who are unnamed. Now when I say the named prophets, the named prophets, we know their names individually, and they either wrote books of the Bible or they did not write books of the Bible, yet we know their names. Okay? Examples of the prophets who are named that he means. Elijah, Elisha, Micaiah, Hanani. These are names of prophets in the books of Kings and Chronicles. In the books of Kings and Chronicles, these are the names of some of these prophets. They lived among the, their contemporaries, their kings, and usually they confront kings, powerful people. They confront them about their sin, and they are named there. They didn't write the books of the Bible, but we know their names, and we know what kind of faith they had, what kind of courage they had to preach the truth to these rulers. This is what he means by the prophets. But also the named prophets would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. This is what he means by the prophets, the named prophets. And these prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, they actually wrote books. They wrote books, the books that have their name in the way that we refer to them, like the book of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah, and so forth. This is what he has in mind when he says the prophets. But also, when you read books, especially the books of Kings and Chronicles, 
as well as a few others, but especially the books of Kings and Chronicles. When you read them, you will find that an unknown or an unnamed prophet will suddenly be explained and he will confront a, a certain king. He will have a certain oracle. He will have a certain revelation, a certain message from God, an unnamed prophet. We don't know his name. He's, sometimes he's called a prophet. Sometimes he's called a man of God. Sometimes he's called a seer. A seer because he sees visions and then he announces what God gave him to preach to the people. Unnamed prophets. There too, there are many of them unnamed in the, these books, especially the books of Kings and Chronicles. All of these are one, examples he has given us of men of God, faithful men of God, who believed and endured in the face of opposition, in the face of hardship, in the face of persecution. They endured. All of these individuals did so. Now, let's say, and let's show briefly some of these uh, individuals and a major event or two in each one's life. In the life of Gideon, in the life of Gideon from the book of Judges, Gideon is one of the judges of Israel. And as a judge of Israel, as it says in Judges 2.17, the judges were raised up, they were raised up to teach the people what God's will was, to teach them to obey God. In fact, let us go there to see this example. And this example not only applies to Gideon, but the rest of the judges. Judges chapter 2. Why were these men raised up? And in one case, one woman, Deborah. Why were they raised up? Why were they raised up to be judges or rulers or even commanders of armies? Why were they raised up? The answer is shown in Judges chapter 2. We'll begin at verse 11. Judges 2 and verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods and the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them, and yet they did not listen to their judges. For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, 
Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it, as their fathers did, or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Joshua conquered the land of Canaan. He was able to subdue the land of Canaan, but he did not, as well as the tribes, they did not remove all of the peoples of the land of Canaan so that only the nation of Israel lived in that land. That did not happen, and God did not have that happen because it says in verse 22, in order to test Israel by them. God let some of the wicked Canaanites still live in the land in order to test Israel to see if Israel would follow the ways of the wicked or not. To test Israel. Is that not the same with us? After we were saved from our sins, did God suddenly cause us to disappear and go to heaven? Did he suddenly transport us to a, a deserted island where there's only believers on that deserted island? Did God do anything like that to us? Did he tell us to go live on the mountaintop? Did he go tell us to live in the dense forest? Did he do any of that to us? No. He kept us in our same place, and then all the peoples are around, right? And what's he doing in the same way with the judges and the people of Israel? He's testing us to see, are we going to hold hands with wicked people? Are we going to hold hands with wicked people and do the same things that they do? No, we should not, right? Just like Israel should not. But what did Israel do? Israel did do that. They practiced sin after Joshua died. They practiced sin for a time. Then, because of their sin, God would punish them by sending foreigners, sending foreigners to come and invade their country and subdue them and enslave them and make their life miserable. He would bring foreigners into the country to make the life of the people miserable. And so then they would have a foreign ruler over them for a while. And after a while, once the people recognized that they were living in sin, they said, this is not right, this is not good, we need to repent, we need to follow the Lord. And then God said, okay, I'll raise up a judge for you. Now the judge would be like a temporary king and a temporary commander of their military. A temporary king and a temporary commander of the military. That's what the judge was. And he might last for a few years or 10 or 20, 30, 40 years like that. That's how long he would do, do that. Then he would die and there would be no judge for a short time. And then the people would relapse into sin. And then they would be miserable. They would repent, cry to God. God said, okay, I'll be merciful to you. I'll send you another judge. And that's who these judges were. Gideon, Barak, Deborah, uh, Samson, Jephthah, and even Samuel was a judge. The prophet Samuel was also a judge. So these individuals and others were raised up by God to teach the people. Notice this. In 2.17, in 2.17 it says, Judges 2.17, and yet they did not listen to their judges for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. The judge was not only a king, not only a commander, 
but he was also a teacher of the people. He taught the people, both by his words and by his deeds, the way of truth, the way of righteousness, the way they should live their life. This is what the judge did. So he had three offices. He was an instructor or a pastor. He was a teacher. That's what he was. He was a king and he was a commander. He had those three and they were to model him and listen to him. Now back to Gideon. Gideon was one of them. Gideon was one of them. And during Gideon's life, God raised him up in order to shake off to shake off the foreign master called the Midianites. A foreign nation named Midian, they enslaved the people of Israel. They made the people's life miserable. And God in his mercy raised up Gideon. And though Gideon initially, he had some timidity, he had some fear. It was not a complete fear. And it was not a, a, a fear of such a kind that he did not try to overcome it. He did. And he became the leader of the people and even to defeat the Midianites with only 300 men. They had tens of thousands. They had 30,000 men. But God said no. He said no, I don't want to deliver you from the Midianites who have an innumerable army. I don't want to use 30,000 men of Israel, Gideon. I want you to, to send some away and many away and only have 300 left. And Gideon, the leader, the commander of this army, he had to have faith. The 300 had to have faith, right? And they did. And Gideon, with that small band of men, God miraculously helped them to defeat the foreign army that had an innumerable host. They had an innumerable host, the Midianites, and God gave them victory. And why? God said to Gideon, if I allow you to have tens of thousands of men, you're going to say, it was my strength that gave me victory over the Midianites. And I don't want you to ever say that. I don't want you to ever think or ever believe that something good in you, something powerful in you, gave you victory over the Midianites. I want to thoroughly convince you, Gideon and your 300, and the rest of the people of Israel, I want to convince you and show you that you only had victory over the Midianites because you had faith in me. You had faith in my almighty power. You had faith in my goodness. You had faith in my mercy. You had faith in the, the ability I have to deliver you not only from the foreign enemy, but also to deliver you from your sins, from your idolatry and immorality. I have that. And Gideon had that. He had that faith. Now, the next uh, one mentioned is Barak. Barak is in Judges as well. Judges chapters 4 and 5. Barak was a man who had as his contemporary Deborah, who was a prophetess. Deborah and Barak, they were both here in the book of Judges. Barak was the commander of the army. Deborah was a prophetess, that means a female prophet. She was a female prophet, and she also was a judge. The two of them, the two of them 
received this oracle from God, from Deborah, and then Barak received this oracle from God that their enemy, some years later, or earlier actually, that they had the Canaanites as their enemies. This is how they are named. They're named Canaanites. The people of Canaan, they had a king and a commander, very powerful, and they enslaved the people of Israel for some time. And after some time, when the people of Israel were miserable, God said, okay, I'll be merciful to you. And he raised up Deborah the prophetess and Barak. And the two of them were the ones who led the people to conquer the Canaanites. And God, through a miracle again, created the ability of Israel to conquer the Canaanites. And in fact, Barak, initially, he was timid, just like Gideon. Initially, he was timid, and he said, I don't want to go unless you, Deborah, you, Deborah the prophetess, you go also with us. And so Deborah said, okay, she's a prophet of, uh, prophetess of God, a female prophet of God, so she said, okay, I will go with you, Barak, into the battle, I will go with you, but because I'm going to go with you, you don't believe enough right now, and because of this and your request, I will go with you, but because I'm going to go with you, God is going to give you victory, not by your hand, but by the hand of a woman. Why? Because the man should have been the one who went out to war, not the woman, right? And so since he wanted Deborah the prophetess to also go out, she said, okay, I'll go out, but there's going to be a woman who gives the final blow, the, the, the major blow to the foreign army of the Canaanites, and this woman, she's going to get all the praise, not you, Barak. Yes, you're, you have faith, but you don't have the kind of faith you need to have this woman. And what is her name? Her name was Jael. Jael, J-A-E-L. Jael was the one who killed the commander of the foreign army. She was the one who killed the commander of the foreign army, and once he was dead, then the rest of their army was demoralized, and they said, okay, we give up. She was the one who killed, Jael killed the commander of the foreign army. So, it required faith, did it not? It required faith in Barak to go out, even though his faith was not as strong as Deborah's. He still did have faith, and he went. Deborah had faith. Jael had faith. And she killed the commander of the foreign army. You can read all about it in chapters 4 and 5, Judges 4 and 5, how a woman gave Israel the victory. And where too, or there too, we can see how God is teaching us, listen, don't trust your own wisdom. Don't trust your own strength. You should know better and do better. And notice, by the hand of a woman who was not in the military, she was just a domestic um, homemaker. She had her family and she was domestic. She did not have employment in the military. She was not a soldier. And yet God used this woman, an untrained woman, to kill the commander of the foreign army, which is another example of God saying, if you have faith in me, God Almighty, Christ Almighty, King of kings and Lord of lords, if you have faith in me, then I will make a way for you. And that's what he did in the case of Barak. How about Samson? In the case of Samson, 
Samson, too, was a judge. Samson's main enemy was the Philistines, another group that lived in the land of Canaan. His main enemy was the Philistines. And in the case of Samson, he also was a judge, which means he was a man of faith. Though we know of a couple of his primary sins, just like with David, he was still a man of faith. And the tenor of his life, the practice of his life, was faith and obedience. Faith and obedience, and that's what he means here. And what did Samson do? Samson, on different occasions, was able to, by the power of God in his life, commit mighty acts against the foreign enemies. Against the foreign enemies. And then, finally at one point, finally at one point, because of some things he had done wrong, some of his sin, he was in a predicament because the Philistines captured him, they plucked out his eyes, and then after some time, when his hair grew long, and when his hair was long, God gave him power, immense power, miraculous power to do certain things. So his eyes were plucked out because of his disobedience, but now he's captured and he's a soldier. And he's there when the Philistines want to have a great party, worship their false gods, and then bring Samson out there into the building in order to laugh at him, ridicule him, and, and say, our God has given victory over our enemies and they want to ridicule and mock Samson. So what does Samson do? The people, the enemies, they did not realize that when his hair was long, his strength came back, and then he prayed to the Lord for his strength to be used to press against the pillars of the building, to press against the pillars of the building, which he did, and once he did that with the help of a boy who was guiding him, when he did that, the building collapsed, and he killed more of the foreign enemies by his death, because he also died, he killed more people with that than he did throughout his whole life. And then Israel had victory over their enemies. And in what way did he do that? He did it in a weak way, in a sense, right? Samson, he had to die himself. And Samson, his eyes were plucked out. God, by his power, was able to defeat the Philistines by Samson the judge who was blind. By a blind judge, God gave Israel victory over their enemies. Again, another example, God uses our faith, our weak condition, our weak condition and our faith to show His power, His glorious, almighty, immense power. That's what He did through Samson. Then we can say, another example, Jephthah. He gives us another example of Jephthah. Who was Jephthah? Jephthah too was a judge in the book of Judges. And in the case of Jephthah, at his time, in Judges 11 and 12, in his time, Jephthah's enemy, foreign enemy, was the Ammonites. The Ammonites, which was a neighboring country, the Ammonites were his enemies, and God used him to deliver the people. Now, who was Jephthah that God used him? Was he of royalty? Was he a wealthy man? Well, who was he? No, Jephthah was an illegitimate son. We don't like to use that word today because we're trying to legitimize illegitimacy 
these days in our culture. So we don't like to say illegitimate son or illegitimate child. Um, we don't say those words, but that's really what it is, and that's what word is in the Bible and in, in laws, in, in laws for millennia. Illegitimate son. So he had a, a father who went to a prostitute or to a harlot, and he was the son of that union. So he was illegitimate. And what did God do with an illegitimate son who now was a man of faith and now was a judge of Israel? What did he do? And by the way, not only was he illegitimate, but his brothers in his own family, father's family, they said, get away from us. You, we want nothing to do with you. Go somewhere else. And he did go somewhere else for a time. He did. So they disowned him. This illegitimate son who was disowned, now he's a man of faith, and now his family knows, his tribe knows, that he is a valiant warrior. He's a mighty warrior. God has gifted him with that. Now that we have this trouble with the Ammonites, we need him back. So this one who was persecuted, this one who was disowned, this one who was born of a prostitute, this one who was illegitimate, now has the platform because God worked in his life, God chose him, and God chose him to deliver the people of Israel from the Ammonites. And then they went into battle, and God gave him the victory over the Ammonites. Our next example is David, King David. To read about King David, we can go to the books of Samuel primarily, from 1 Samuel 16 through 2 Samuel, and then into 1 Kings chapter 2, as well in 1 Chronicles. The book of 1 Chronicles is primarily about King David. These are the primary places we can read about his life. But if we were to read what he wrote, that would be in the Psalms. If we read the Psalms, we can read about what he wrote, the kind of faith he had, the kind of man of God he was in the Psalms. And what did David experience? David, being a man of God, a prophet of God, he was many things. He was also a musician. He was a poet. This is the way David was. He was all of these. And he was a writer of Scripture, right? As a prophet, a written prophet of God. That's who he was. So this David... He had persecution before he ever became king. He had King Saul chasing after him, trying to put him to death so that he would never become king. And this happens before he's ever king, for several years before he's ever king. Saul is against David. Saul should appreciate David because they're part of the same country. Saul should be using David in the right way to help Saul to keep peace in the country and to keep prosperity in, in the country and to fend off the foreign enemies, right? He, but he's not using David like that. In, in fact, he's jealous of David, and David runs for his life time and time again. But what did David have? Well, how was David able to sustain himself while he had this internal enemy, King Saul? He had faith. He believed in the word of Christ. He believed in the promises of God not only generally, but specifically for his own life, that eventually God would give him the throne. Eventually he would be the king of Israel. Eventually his dynasty would exist. And in his dynasty, among his descendants, Christ would come and then die on the cross for David's sins. These are the things that he believed. 
He believed these things, so he persevered, even though his life was threatened constantly by King Saul. And not only King Saul, but during this conflict with Saul, and after King Saul died, when he became king, David, David had constant foreign enemies. Foreign enemies. The Philistines, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites, all of these people were his enemies. And he had to constantly wage war to protect himself and his people away from the foreign enemies. And how did David do all of this? And, and in the midst of all this, how did he write all of the Psalms? He did it because he had faith. Faith in the word of Christ. That's how he was sustained. He was not sustained by his own wisdom, by his own strength, by his own military prowess. He was not sustained like that. He was sustained because God gifted him faith, gifted him with wisdom, gifted him with abilities. That's how he endured. And that's why he is a model. Though he too, just like Samson, just like Jephthah, just like others, he too had some major sins in his life, though he did not practice sin. He practiced righteousness through faith. He practiced righteousness. And then we have Samuel. Samuel was a prophet of God, a man of God, uh, and a priest of God, and he was also a judge. He was the last of the judges until the kings of Israel. Saul and David and Solomon were the first three kings of Israel. But before they became kings, the judges who were temporarily the rulers of the people, Samuel was one of them. And in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1 to 25, we can read about Samuel. Primarily in those places we read about Samuel. Samuel, too, was a man of faith. And he was a man of faith from his childhood. From his childhood, he had faith, and that faith endured for the rest of his life. We read earlier from 1 Samuel chapter 7 the kinds of things Samuel exhorted the people to do. What kinds of things did he exhort the people to do? 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, he said, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Then they did it. They did so. Verse 5, what else did he tell the people? Gather all Israel to Mitzvah, a certain city. Gather them to Mitzvah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. What did he do? He was an intercessor, and he prayed for his people that they might have victory in war and be able to worship God in peace, to worship God in peace. And he exhorted them to fast, which they did in verse 6. They fasted, and they acknowledged, we have sinned against the Lord. They did not say that on their own. Samuel taught them that they needed to repent of their sins, and then they do. They repent, and then verse 8, then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They knew he was a holy man, a righteous man, a man of faith, so they asked him, they petitioned him to pray to the Lord for their benefit. Isn't that what we should do? Men of faith, shouldn't we do that? We pray for others that they might have faith too, that they might believe, that they might obey. And then victory was given against the Philistines, Samuel's 
enemies at the time. And verse 12. After the victory, then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mitzvah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. He set up a stone, a memorial stone, and he gave that memorial stone a name. He gave it the name Ebenezer. Eben means stone, and Ezer means um, help. Stone of help. A helping stone, or stone of help. That's the name he gave it, because that was to commemorate who actually helped him. Was it Samuel? Was it their army? No. The Lord has helped us. The only reason why Samuel's faith or Samuel's prayers or Samuel's exhortation to the people to repent of their sin, the only reason why they had military victory was not because of them, but because the Lord helped them. The Lord, by His immense, almighty power, helped them. And then they did have peace. Verses 13 and 14 teach us that then they did have peace because they did it the Lord's way. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come anymore within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. All the days of Samuel. Why all the days of Samuel? Because he was a faithful judge a faithful preacher and teacher to the people, so God protected them from evildoers, from the Philistines. And it says again in 14, so there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And the Amorites is another way to describe the Philistines. 15 says, Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mitzvah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. In 16, he went around the country, around the country to judge the people. And to judge the people means they would have questions, they would have disputes, they would have problems, so he went locally to make himself available so that the local people could approach him and ask him, what does the Word of God say about our dispute, about our problems, about our this or our that? He would go there to teach the people or judge the people, that's the phraseology, to judge them, to tell them the difference between righteousness and wickedness, the right way and the wrong way. He judged them in that sense. He taught them what was legal, what was illegal, what was pleasing to God, what was displeasing to God. He went all around to teach them that. And also... Verse 17, he built an altar to the Lord there in Ramah, in his place. An altar to the Lord, that is, to serve God and worship God where he was. That's the kind of love he had for God and faithfulness he had to God. And finally, the prophets. If we read the prophets, there are so many examples of them. And one of the things I would like us to notice when we read the prophets is how much the prophets of God, whether named or unnamed, whether those that have written books or not, how often they are courageous, how often they are fearless, and how often they are in the face of death from their own people and especially from their own kings. Kings, evil kings of Israel and Judah. They would approach them, sometimes even in the court of the king, and tell them, 
You are sinning against God. An example would be like John the Baptist, who said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And they hated him for saying that. John the Baptist said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That's what the prophets would do. Elijah would do that against Ahab. Elisha would do that against Jehoram. This would happen again and again and again by the prophets of God confronting the wicked and evil kings. Notice their fearlessness. Notice their courage. They weren't concerned about their life. They weren't concerned. They didn't say, I wonder what he's going to think of me if I do that. I wonder if he's going to be my friend anymore. I wonder if he's going to keep giving me money. I wonder if he's going to walk away from me. I wonder if he's going to put me in prison. I wonder if he's going to put me to death. I wonder if he's going to assassinate me. They didn't worry about it like that. When they knew the truth and God told them, go approach the king. They approached the king, sent word to the king, whatever. They told the king whatever they needed to know. That's the way we need to be. Have that kind of faith, the faith of the prophets. And we are to imitate and emulate the prophets. Right? Some people think, no, 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 no. The prophets, they had a special task, but our task is not as uh, equal to their task. Our task is an easier task. Our task does not entail telling the people the truth regardless of the outcome. No, no, that's not our task. Actually, it is. Matthew chapter 5, it says the following. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Matthew 5, 10 to 12, and he's telling us this. Jesus, our Lord Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He said, the prophets had that happen to them, it will happen to you. You're just like the prophets. We're supposed to be just like the prophets in this way. That is, speak forth the word of truth. Say what we need to say because it's a matter of life and death. Heaven and hell. Where will these people go? And it is incumbent upon us. We are obligated to do the same. To have this kind of faith, the faith of the saints of old. Old Testament, New Testament, and even throughout history, and even sometimes our contemporaries, we must have enduring faith. Faith in Christ, trust His character, trust His goodness, trust His power, faith in Christ that endures until the end. Mm. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that when we think of these incidents, when we think of these people of old, that it is not even close to some of the things that we have experienced. Yet, Lord, we pray that you will grant us their kind of faith. We pray that you will grant to us their kind of victory, victory over their personal life, personal sin, or victory over public sins and public needs. We pray that in whatever case, you will grant to us this kind of faith, endurance, perseverance, that this kind of conviction, zeal, righteousness, holiness, whatever it need, uh, we need, we pray 
that you will grant it to us. Grant it to us in abundance. May we be different. May we be distinct. May we not be like the nations around us. You have placed us here, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that we will pass the test. We will endure. We will have this faith. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.